Hello and welcome to another episode of the Next Space broadcast brought to you by Reflex Aerospace. Today we have two guests joining us from Satellite View. Satellite View operates in the high resolution thermal imaging space and they are going to launch their first thermal uh, imaging satellite in June 2023, which is two months away. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I hope everything works out great for you guys. And uh, so we have Tobias Reinecke, uh, the co-founder and CTO of uh, Satellite Vu joining us. He has a background in geography and GIS. And we also have Alex Gao, the sales director of Satellite Vu, who also has a background in geology. Alex and Tobias, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Nice, nice to meet you. Great. So today's uh, discussion is going to be very interesting because Satellite Vu operates in both the upstream as well as the downstream uh, segments of space. Right on the upstream segment or the satellite segments, you guys are building thermal imaging payloads. And on the user segment, the downstream uh, segment, you are offering a lot of these image analytics and insights into infrastructure, water pollution or energy using thermal imagery. So perhaps we can alternate talking between these two themes. So to keep it a bit interesting for the listeners. Of course. And great. So let's, uh, let's dive right in. Maybe a little bit of introduction. So what kind of thermal uh, imaging satellites in terms of spectral bands and spatial resolutions are currently in operation? And how much of uh, this imagery is available commercially? Yeah, so most places start. Like Historically, I mean, really the only commercial system available at the moment that people get their hands on the thermal data is its Landsat. Um, and that gives you data at about 100 meter pixel resolution. Um, so it's, it's used for sort of broad area surveys, but it's, it's quite limited in terms of its revisit. Um, and the types of applications we're focused on, it, it doesn't help with that. It's, it just doesn't have high enough resolution to be able to solve some of these problems. Um, there are a number of other commercial systems coming online in the, in the next few years. They're really targeted at agricultural applications. They're still quite low resolution. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at really what's commercially available, it has to be done with either an aerial or drone system at the moment to get down to like building level uh, thermal measurements. So there really is no alternative to, to what we're providing. Okay, that's, uh, that's good to know. And so thereby you're building your own um, satellite constellation eventually. And one of the biggest challenges, as far as I know, in building thermal imaging satellites is in minimizing the onboard thermal noise, right? Are there any other requirements on the satellite bus that are unique to a thermal imaging system? Yeah, so um, it's unique to a high resolution thermal imaging system, I'd say. Um, Landsat, like we just talked about, is a, is a satellite that can just hoover up imagery as it goes up the Earth. Um, but we are a much smaller and much higher resolution swath. And because the ground is moving at seven kilometers a second underneath the satellite, we actually need to stop and stare and track the Earth as we, as we cover it. Um, so we, we have to move the satellite itself in space to track the point on the Earth, uh, which is pretty novel and doesn't necessarily get done in, in many other methodologies from, from imagery or SAR. Um, so that's, that's a big one. The other, the other one for thermal specification is each thermal detector or the thermal detectors need to get corrected or the data needs to be corrected on non-uniformity. So there is going to be weird behaviors in the, the pixel responses according to what's happening on the, on the ground and light coming in. That needs to be corrected. And traditionally, you can do that taking imagery of big homogenous areas on the ground, so deserts, uh, ice caps, etc. But 
Um, we have actually an onboard capability that allows us to capture data from an onboard uh, paddle, uh, which gives us a much more flexible system. Um, and, then, and then finally, we, we're a satellite that can take imagery day and night, and that's super exciting, obviously, being able to do thermal images at night. Um, going to be really great. You're doing daytime thermal imaging poses its own challenges in, the, in that we have a lot of solar reflection uh, issues, effectively. So we see a lot of reflection coming back in into the spectrum that we're in. Um, so on the satellite, again, we have a, a day filter, which will cut that out. Um, and those have been design choices that have been made throughout the time building satellite. Cool. Uh, now that you mention onboard uh, capability and a lot of this onboard processing, so how does the, the whole data processing chain, the payload data processing chain work uh, on, on board at Satellite Pool? Yeah, so um, at the moment, the, the design, considering we're up, we're not in space yet, so the, the answer to that is it's not. But uh, if, when we go to space, the design of the, the payload processing is that the majority of the data, or all the data will be downlinked um, by your usual satellite ground station mechanisms. And the data processing will be primarily done in the cloud, uh, on, on the ground in the cloud. Um, there is a limited amount of usability of processing in the, on, on the satellite initially. Um, we typically onboard processing is done for minimizing data size to increase or decrease data latency. We, for better or for worse, aren't a big data company. Um, our data is going to be fairly limited in size because we are such high resolution and fairly small swath. So we are perfectly capable of downloading all the data at once. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't want to do more on board. Um, and whilst compression and pre-processing of the data on board is going to be something that we will definitely do, the more interesting things are looking at detecting hotspots, um, even, even detecting an outlining hotspot so that you can basically pass down that sort of information um, on a very low latency link to the customers. So if you're, if you're fighting fires and the satellite can do an automatic fire threshold detection, draw a polygon around it and send it to the firefighter within minutes, that's massive, and that's that's the way we want to get to it. That's cool. Wow! So uh, lots more, a um, lot of requirement for having high computing uh, FPGAs on board, Ben. Absolutely. Great. And speaking of uh, image processing or data processing, Alex, uh, perhaps this is a question for you. So how does the whole um, thermal image processing happen on ground, and how do you see this evolve in uh, in the future? Yeah, so it might, might actually be better for a, a Toby question, but I think it, the key thing I think we're going through at the moment is, is deciding like what is the data format that our customers most want to use. What what's the processing level? Um, and with thermal data, there are inherent um, inbuilt limitations around like does a customer need absolute temperatures? Are they able to use our data in a relative sense? So relative temperatures simply comparing temperatures between different surface types, or do they actually need to know the absolute temperature of that object on the ground? And that's kind of leading our approach to, to, to these processing levels and the development um, steps we're taking together. Um, and it's, it's really customer-driven in terms of that demand. So those are the products uh, we talk about in terms of um, how, how accurate and what the sort of uh, response of the thermalness is on that product. So is it absolute temperature, like Alex said. So, and prior to that, we do need to correct for things that any other satellite manufacturer and imager has to do. So we've got a whole georeferencing pipeline. We need to make sure that the pixels that we capture are on the right place in, in the Earth, apologies, um, on the Earth, um, so that people can derive insights, can, 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 do, can do proper stuff from there. Um, the, other, the other process that we need to do is um, we, we do that calibration on the ground using the data that we get from the space. Um, and then 
we, we start processing that against a, a massive database of known materials to create some of these products that we have. Okay, that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that sounds cool. Uh, creating databases and calibration, so yeah, the usual image processing stuff, I would assume. Okay, that's, uh, that's interesting. And I'm assuming that you are currently focusing on uh, building the thermal uh, payload and not the rest of the satellite and you are procuring the satellite uh, platform commercially. Yeah, so, so we, we actually have a really good relationship with SSTL, so um, sorry, Satellites Technology Limited, based out of UK in Guildford. Uh, so the, the payload and the satellite um, are, are, are their design and their, their, their procurement and their build. Um, they have a relationship with the detector manufacturer, which they've embedded into the design of their carbonite platform. And this is very much the the, the reason why we've been as successful as we have been and has been so attractive to investors is because we're using something that's flown before in terms of the actual structure of the bus. has gone up many times, carbonite series. Um, SSTL are looking at doing a SAR, um, a SAR product with their carbonite platform bus. So it was very much use what you've done before and now spend the effort in making sure that the payload works. Yes, there's different things we need to do in terms of power consumption and thermal outputs, but a lot of the prior work that would be very risky for us to have done ourselves is de-risked, is, uh, is heritage um, parts that have flown in, in space already. So that's, that's the relationship we have at SSDL. Um, and it's been working very good so far. We're, we're keen to see the satellite being wrapped up and shipped in May um, over to Vandenberg to get launched on the 10th of June. That's great. Yeah, I mean, of course, SSTL has a fantastic uh, track record. And apart from flight heritage, are there any other design considerations um, when you look for a commercial provider of the satellite bus? Yeah, so we, um, we, we very much go from the, from the customers and users' perspective talking about what is it that they want, right? So there's no, no need to design something for the sake of designing a, a cool piece of technology if no one's going to buy the data you're going to get from it. Um, so very much customer-focused. Everyone wants higher resolution. Everyone wants high, lower latency. Everyone wants uh, lower, um, yeah, lower latency, smaller size. And, some of those are easier to do than others. Um, high resolution would mean a slightly different satellite because it's a bigger mirror, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when it comes to, we talked about onboard already, that, that actually offers customers quite a big thing that they care about. So pre-processing, immediate data downlinking, um, which we're talking about inter-satellite links on the hardware on the, on the satellites as well. And that's, that's again big for us, which means we don't have any latency in terms of connecting to the ground station, uplinking schedules, et cetera. It's immediate whenever we want. Um, and then the future iterations, we were looking at all sorts of things, extra spectral bands in the detector, secondary detector, um, as well as larger capacity into satellite links, um, allowing us to download the payload data immediately. So very much looking at what the customer's needs um, and trying to react to that, working with SSTL clearly, because we can't just say, now we're going to put a whole new mirror on there and they come turn around and say, it's going to take forever. It's, it's very much working with them, seeing what is realistic and what is actually going to meet the customer's needs. Okay, that's uh, interesting. Do you intend to eventually, at some point, maybe into the far future, uh, build your own satellite pl platforms, or do you just prefer to stay with the payloads? We've we've um, we've had a good relationship with SSTL so far. There's absolutely currently no reason for us to think of, of change that relationship and change the way we do it. Um, I think we've we've progressed, like I said, so far because we have focused on the downstream um, customer interactions, making sure the data is correct, deploying the data. We, we are basically now ready to sell data. Already, as soon as we get it, we may not have been in that position if we've had to hire payload manufacturers, engineers, that kind of stuff. Building our stuff ourselves is riskier, for sure, than, than getting the experts to do what they've got 10 years of experience already doing. Okay, that's, uh, that's great to know. 
Um, and maybe one uh, last question about the, you know, the, about the commercial satellite platform. Um, at what stage do you typically, um, or in what all stages of the satellite development do you wish to participate, or do you usually participate? You know, in, in the design reviews or the requirement reviews, or at what all stages? Absolutely everything. Um, for better or for worse, we're always there. Um, we are the customer for SSDL particularly, and at the design review, we put we put specifications together as to what it is that we require <clears throat> at the, the initial. Critical, uh, well, preliminary critical um, design reviews were there to, to make sure everything's going on track and any adjustments that need to be made where we understand the limitations, sometimes they're physical, sometimes they're timely, and we have to make decisions about what gets done or not. Um, but again, everything comes back to Alex and his team about what, what, what if we give up X, what does that affect when it comes to potential revenue or commercial, or commercial insights? Nice, so at the end of the day, it's all about trade-offs and what the customer wants. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. We, we don't need to build the 100% the perfect satellite first off, right? So let's let's get it to 80%, yeah. uh, that caters for 80% of the requirements, and, and then we have another seven satellites to improve upon. So um, we're, we're very, we're, we're like working the agile sort of methodology. So that's, that's how we approach that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, space is hard and nothing is really perfect in space. So if it works, then that's perfect enough. Really? Yep. So it's... Um, uh, I've asked a lot of bunch of these uh, probed a bit into this topic because uh, as a satellite manufacturer at Reflex, it's very um, interesting to know what goes on in the mind of the payload designer because at Reflex, I'm part of the engineering team and then we have these reviews and a lot of these discussions and meetings every week, every, every quarter. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a good perspective to have, you know, to think from the perspective of someone who's actually going to use the satellite platform. Um, yeah, as, as, as the payload manufacturer. So that's, uh, that's quite interesting. And maybe we can switch back to the data, the segment, the user data segment. Um, so perhaps this is more of a sales question. I'm assuming you also fuse uh, optical or near infrared or SAR or other kinds of imagery with your thermal uh, imagery to achieve all these insights into you know, water pollution or uh, infrastructure or other areas. And if so, how do you procure these images? And do you see any inadequacies in terms of spectral bands or spatial resolution or frequency of imaging, uh, geographical coverage in these other uh, in, the, in in images of these other bands? Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting area, and it's it kind of changes depending on the application we're looking at. But um, we. We're quite lucky in the sense that a thermal image is an optical image and it's quite simple for someone to look at it and, and kind of intuitively understand like what is hot and what is cold. It's quite a sort of a common thing that, that people grasp with. I think the key thing that we, we, we have to do is put the data into context of where we're looking. So quite often in terms of simple use of, of other data sets, it's, it's all about providing context. So like using an optical base map or something to provide that contextual layer. What are you looking at? what is providing that thermal change. Um, so typically we've, we're still using mostly sort of open source uh, um, data sets to, 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 um, to, to do that work at this stage. Um, but we've, we've very much taken a kind of partner first approach in our, in our commercial sense to find partners that have other uh, optical payloads where our thermal data could be really complementary. We've got a number of um, opportunities whereby we can complement an optical system by filling in that nighttime gap. So you can imagine monitoring something during the day and then being able to fill in that uh, the hours of darkness with the thermal sensor. Lots of other applications where we can provide that next added value, like 
step of like answering the next question. So imagine you you identify something in your SAR in your optical, uh, sorry, in your in your optical, yeah, SAR optical sensors. Um, perhaps it's a, a, a ship that's coming to port. You really in the in the optical side, you only really get that understanding of what's going on the outside of structures or, or physical objects. If you want to know, like, is the engine of that ship on or off? That's something that then the thermal can help with. So quite a, quite a number of the applications we're developing are on that kind of tipping and queuing um, kind of use case, whereby our data really well complements um, other existing uh, data sets that use the things. Um, we, we, the other thing we're, we're looking at is to the future, like what's coming online into the future as well, because I think with the proliferation of hyperspectral sensors, that's really interesting for us because with our data, as I mentioned earlier, to get to those sort of more in-depth analytical products where we're looking at absolute temperatures, we need to understand surface material in quite a lot of detail. So potentially, we definitely see a, a use in the future of where a high-resolution hyperspectral system could help build us a greater understanding of what those different surface materials are, and that would then be a data set we, we would use within our uh, data production workflow to, to build yeah, that, that absolute uh, product. Um, but again, yeah, it's all customer driven, and um, really it's, it's um, yeah, going to be led and, and guided by the customers that are using our data. Wow, that seems like a million different possibilities, and uh, seems to be a very exciting space. <laughs> And do you, when you, when procuring these uh, different kinds of imagery, do you face any issues or any obstacles or any uh, inadequacies? I think the, the usual, like, I think um, the, the cost of very high resolution data, I think, is a, is a very common theme. Like, um, it's, it's hard to get away from that. I think the proliferation of, of optical sensors is definitely helping with that. Mm. But again, it depends on the, the application and the use case to, to it's got to fit within the value of the information you're deriving from that. Um, I think we, we try to use open source as much as possible, like in some of our, Toby mentioned some of the things like improving our geolocational accuracy. Um, we, we're using quite a bit of Sentinel data at the moment in our production workflow just to improve the geolocational accuracy of our, of our data to, to kind of best, um, best from a, a free data source, let's say. Um, and then it, it's perhaps that some customers might need higher levels of geolocation or accuracy. In that, in that case, we might look to procure some more premium data sets and say provide that, that added value for us. So, yeah. We've we've seen um, just to add in, but we've seen that if we were, were to try and consume um, various radar data sets, where some of the providers are still using emails to communicate in terms of tasking and understanding how you get that. So that's on a one-off kind of R&D perspective, fine, but once you want to put that into a pipeline or into a, like a production-wide pipeline, that's just impossible. So um, there is definitely, it's an interesting activity because we're just going through that sort of, how do we expose tasking to our customers by API and UI ourselves? And we've got to that now. So it's, it's good to see what the rest of the industry are doing. And to be honest, some of them are just not ready to be ingested into a production system. Okay, that's, uh, that's cool. Speaking of um, high cost and the perceived value of these uh, imagery, uh, have you ever faced any challenges in onboarding, uh, let's say, potential customers of thermal data products who have never used satellite-based services before? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And it was, I think joining this company, like I wasn't necessarily prepared for that challenge. Of bringing, we're essentially bringing a brand new data source to a market. Um, so, so there is a lot of customer education that is required because I think quite often people haven't necessarily thought about how they might use a data set like this, of this resolution, of this 
kind of frequencies that we'll be able to uh, provide. So we, we've definitely been helped by a couple of things. I think we, we've we've had a test platform essentially that we've been flying on an aerial system. Mm. So we've been able to build up this archive of data to be able to um, provide to potential customers to help them with that journey of understanding how our data can be used. Um, and that's been invaluable. Like we, um, and it's in, the second part of the thing that we've had a lot of success with is a program that we've developed to actually provide that data to our customers. So we've, we've had it, it's called an early access program. Uh, it's, it's a few other companies, I think, uh, that have had successful programs like this. The key benefit I think that we can provide is we have a, a huge archive of now, I think it's 3,000 scenes or so of, of thermal data, um, which really helps these customers to develop, test, uh, iterate, and that kind of thing. So that essentially we can be commercially ready as soon as the satellite launches to start providing data into their workflows and, and, and that they will know instinctively like, how is this data going to help solve the problems that I have? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the end of the day, I would say, I think sales is hard. Uh, sometimes I feel building satellites or the tech technical work is way easier when I hang out with our sales team. So. <laughs> Uh, especially in space, it can be very hard. Um, no, it can be a very collaborative effort. And I think it's, it's something we've done quite well is, is that combination of sales and, and technical. I think there's, there's quite often a battle, isn't there, between commercial and um, uh, technical or product side within companies. But I'd like to think this, this has worked quite well. We stay friendly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Can you give uh, probably an estimate in orders of magnitude how much uh, money potential customers of your thermal data products are willing to spend on these kind of monitoring solutions or insights? Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually been another great success of our early access program. Um, we've included actually an agreement for a, a purchase option. So it's, it's actually an indication of the size of the contract that they, they might be willing to pursue. Hmm. Um, and so far, we've got about 57 customers um, as of this morning that, that signed up to our, uh, our program. And that totals about just over 100 million in, in purchase options. <coughs> Excuse me. Just getting a cough. Hopefully, you can edit coughs out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's okay. um, so, yeah, these, these 57 customers. Um, We've got about just over 100 million in, in purchase options. Um, and they kind of, the interesting thing with, I think, the, this program is it's we're not just getting defense customers or just getting climate customers. It's, it's a really broad range of customers. Um, some of the larger interests initially, I think, are, are probably going on the defense side. Um, but we are definitely seeing a lot of interest in, in built environments. That's, um, that's great. I mean, congratulations on your customer <coughs> base. That's certainly very impressive. Um, so, circling back to the satellite segment, um, you assuming that you would have some done some sort of a market survey in selecting a satellite platform and evaluating the options. And how how do you see the typical commercially available satellite platforms faring in terms of their suitability towards uh, thermal payloads? So we, we've been approached, as you can imagine, by, by various payload manufacturers and, man and satellite manufacturers because they, well, we have we have a need and they think they have a, they have a solution. Um, there, there's always optionality, and uh, based on what they're saying, they can do whatever it is that we want them to do. But there's always a question about cost, right? 
Um, our, our current agreement with SSTL works really well for us. Um, the bus is exactly the right size for us, both in limiting weight for launch costs um, and for agility. So when we look at look at the sort of bus that we care about, it needs to be agile enough to, to do the whole movement in space to track the earth correctly and not spend too much time uh, trying to do that versus not be too heavy versus not have enough redundancy on it. So it's, I don't think it's anything massively special that we're doing um, that we would need from a bus. It just needs to meet the, the requirements that this specific payload uh, might have on a, obviously on a, on a power and thermal basis. Um, I think it's interesting on the thermal, we haven't necessarily had, had much of an offer um, from, from satellite manufacturers looking at being really good at thermal uh, dissipation. Um, but that, that could change, especially with more and more yeah, competitors coming online, uh, building some of their own, and but also outsourcing some of their own um, designs that, that com companies uh, in, the, in the bus manufacturing world will, will start looking at this more seriously. Um, so we, we did, a, did a market survey a long time ago. Um, SSTL was still by far the best and most advanced, and that's, that hasn't changed. Okay, interesting. Um, do you see a lot of uh, other thermal uh, payload manufacturers or you know companies like Satellite Vu that also offer um, uh, INSA image imagery, thermal imagery analytics? Or do you think it's some sort of a winner takes all kind of scenario, or is there space for multiple? No, there's, there's definitely space, and Alex also opined that there's, there's definitely space because um, there's quite a big range from where drones and airplanes can, can work and where Landsat currently is. So anywhere between zero and 100 meters is fair game. We are at a certain level, but that by definition precludes us from doing wide area coverage. Whereas other, some of the other um, competitors, well, I say they're friends, they're not really competitors because some of them are at 70 meters and they're doing really nice wide area agricultural monitoring. Some of them are 50 meters, 40, 50 meters doing water stress, etc. So it's all, it's all collaborative and I think it's all going to be complementary. Um, a lot of it also for somewhat seeding the market and helping with the education to the end user because, um, like Alex said, it's, it's going to customers saying, we can solve a problem you didn't even know we could solve for you or you could get solved with them all day. So um, I see all that as a, as a nice um, combination of companies working in, in the same sort of domain that, that can work together. Um, but can't be Alex if you're doing that. Yeah, I mean, there's some very specific applications, I think, where they're very complementary. Um, so Toby mentioned some of the lower resolution. There's um, a few systems being designed for like fire detection, right. uh, but they're not going to be particularly suitable for monitoring the fire once it's been detected and providing like real-time information to say firefighters on the ground. And that's where our sensor can come in. So once you've detected a fire, then having a high resolution to actually do that ability to be able to see all the individual hotspots in that, that fire front. Um, one of the things our, our sensor's got is also quite unique is it's actually a video sensor. Mm -hmm. So we're getting to do like sort of speed and, and motion detection up to, up to a minute's worth of video. So that's something that's really perfectly interest to those, those firefighters to be able to, okay, can we estimate the speed and the direction and where this fire is progressing as it grows? Yeah. It's a great example of where it's a collaborative. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, yeah it's, that sounds fantastic. And uh, really looking forward to... 10th of June uh, as your launch, right? So, so to, to, the, to the result uh, and maybe the, the really interesting images from your satellite. So looking forward and fingers crossed. And thank you for a lot of very valuable insights, uh, Tobias, Alex. It's been a really nice session with you guys. Thanks, and hope at some point in future, we could also be able to collaborate and do something for fun sure. in the thermal imaging space. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your time.